This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3445 for Friday, the 15th of October 2021. Today's show is entitled, True Critical Thinking Seems to be the Key, and is part of the series Health and Healthcare. It is hosted by Dave Morris, and is about 72 minutes long, and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, a response to HPR 3414. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Hello everybody, welcome to Hacker Public Radio. My name is Dave Morris and uh, I have a, a co-host along here with me, Andrew Conway, which uh, we'll, we'll talk more about each other and uh, ourselves, I should say, in a moment or two. What we're doing here is we are looking at episode 3414, which was entitled Critical Thinking May Make You Critical of the COVID Crisis. We're looking at it as a show from a, a new HBR host, and we're just examining the points being made in that in that show uh, from the point of view of and a sort of analysis of of the points. Nothing about the the show host or anything of that sort, but but looking at them in a in as um, unbiased a way as is possible. So let's start with uh, some terms that are used throughout this particular show. The first one is critical thinking. And uh, I thought it was important to define that to some degree. It's not an easy subject to define, but Wikipedia says it's the analysis of facts of form of judgment. It says that the subject is complex, which, which I've just said, Several definitions exist which generally include rational, skeptical, unbiased analysis or evaluation of factual evidence. And there's a reference. There's lots of references in this. Each section we're talking about has got references and they're all consolidated at the end of the, the main show notes. So the terms fact, factual evidence, unbiased analysis are very important. And I would contend that episode 3414 fails to some extent in, in in regards to critical thinking in several places but uh, we we're going to we're going to look at this as we go along second point is what's an experiment an experiment is a procedure carried out to support or refute a hypothesis this is from wikipedia experiments provide insight into cause and effect by demonstrating what outcome occurs when a particular factor is manipulated so what happens if you pour this substance in or poke it or stick an electric, electric shock into or whatever? The term experiment is used, I believe, incorrectly in episode 3414. The better term would be observation or anecdote. So we'll be looking at that in a bit more detail. The next point is 
just to say just to say that um, we're talking here about COVID, which is a disease caused by a virus. The virus is a coronavirus. There are many viruses that are classified in this way. It's, it's called that because of its spike, the spikes on the surface of it. It has a sort of crown-like look to it. The name of the virus in this particular case is SARS-CoV-2. So S-A-R-S, SARS, stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and that's the type of disease caused by the virus, at least the most severe part of it. C-O-V, COV, signifies that it's a coronavirus. I think this name was produced by the World Health um, Organization, WHO, yeah. And the two on the end means it's the second SARS-type coronavirus to have caused uh, problems, problems of human disease in the recent past. The other one, just called SARS at, at the time, and I don't think it's been renamed, that occurred in 2003. It's not the same virus. It's a different virus. The disease is, has similarities, but uh, it's um, it's not the same. Actually, no. I think it has been retrospectively renamed SARS-CoV-1. CoV yeah. Oh, but, okay, it, okay. That makes you're a right, lot of sense, old, yeah. In the historical literature, like World War One, wasn't called that at the time, <laughs> for <laughs> obvious reasons. Yeah. It's just called yeah. SARS, but I think now it's called SARS-CoV-2. I, it's SARS-CoV-1. I I had a look and I couldn't find it, but uh, it, it's been very much a moving target, hasn't it, this thing? Yeah. Um, but just to make things clear, because it, it is an area that has caused confusion in all sorts of ways, I think. And there's still name changes and so forth. There's variants and so on which are names whose names are changing. Uh, the name of the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2 is COVID-19. So they're two different things. You can't... The virus is not COVID-19, the virus is SARS-CoV-2, and the disease is not SARS-CoV-2, it's COVID-19. The letters COVID define it as a coronavirus disease. Not the nicest name, but there you go. And the 19 part is because it was first discovered in 2019. That's that's my terms that I thought were would be helpful to have defined. So yeah, now, that's, that's, that's all clear. I mean, just... I, the way I think about it is COVID-19 is the bag of symptoms that a doctor or a medical professional would use to diagnose the disease without any test. There is no test for COVID-19. You can't do uh, a test for COVID-19 in a, in a sense because it is a bag of symptoms you would recognise. The test is specifically, as you said, Dave, for sars SARS-CoV-2 uh, or COVID-2 sometimes it's called. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, and I think it's important to realise that you, you know, uh, that at some point the judgment of a medical professional is essential here to decide whether somebody actually does have the, the disease and that judgment may depend upon the test for the virus. Indeed, indeed, yes, yes. What we want to do then is to analyse the various points made in episode 3414 and we're, we're, what we're doing is we're looking at individual slices of the original show. We're referring to a piece of the audio. And I've put the start and end times into the, the notes. And uh, we're going to sample the audio to, uh, to add in at uh, relevant points. But if you're just looking at the written form, there's a transcript of the audio in there. So, um, so there's, there's, there's the, the original thing that we're actually talking about. So a little bit of um, biography from, from us, from the two of us. 
I'm Dave Morris, as I've already said. I've got a degree in biology and I've maintained an interest in the subject, read around it, kept learning about it while actually working outside that subject in information technology. And during my education, as with most scientific educations, I was required to read and understand scientific papers and the arguments that they made. So to do sort of meta-analyses and that type of thing. I tried to use these methods that I've learned to analyse the points made in show 3414 and to refer to all the, as many relevant papers and articles as I could as I could find. So over to you, Andrew. Uh, yeah, unlike uh, Dave, well, first of all, my name is Andrew Conway, also known as McNallu online. Uh, unlike Dave, I don't have a background in biology. In fact, uh, I didn't really even study it at school to any great length. So I really do defer to Dave and people who, who know more than me about that. So you'll notice that what I'm say, what I say, I'm, I'm careful not to stray into territory that I I don't have expertise in. Where my background lies in science is in um, uh, is in statistics, mathematics, physics, and astronomy. And my PhD was uh, in the statistical methods uh, that of inventing new statistical methods uh, to analyze solar and geomagnetic activity. Um, and while I was doing that, I got into adult education and I, I ended up first of all at Glasgow University and then I went to the Open University. And while I was there, I actually ended up teaching postgraduates a course in advanced statistics and at the same time was writing a book on astronomy for children. So. It, that one interest of mine is trying to explain these kind of scientific, mathematical, statistical ideas to a wide audience. That's something that a thread that's run the way throughout my adult life. Most recently, I, I stepped out of my comfort zone and had a look at data on society and economics, um, and in particular the society in which I live, which is in Scotland, uh, and um, and that was published in a book called How Scotland Works uh, a couple of years ago. And I have actually worked uh, in keeping that information up to date and at the um, the new information that we've all had to try and digest on COVID-19 and the pandemic. Uh, although my focus has been particularly how that's taken place in Scotland and the UK in detail, although I, I am always looking at other countries too. So I'm not a virologist. I'm not epide epidemiologist. I can barely say it. Um, I defer to Dave in the biology, but it, it does interest me, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm learning about that as I go. Excellent. Fantastic. Yeah, I just say I'm not a virologist, nor an immunologist, nor an epidemiologist, <laughs> or any of those things, but just, uh, you know, having had a, doing a degree in the subject uh, can mean that you, you end up looking around for, for all of the, the the, um, the materials on the news and digging into scientific papers and that sort of thing. So, so uh, it's I'm a great believer in uh, in sort of continuous uh, learning into my older age. So, yeah. So let's get on with the um, with the various points. So we've got six points that we're going to be addressing, and um, we'll uh, we'll just we'll just go head first into these and. Uh, um, there, each one is followed by the audio. I should say is followed by uh, responses from the, the two of us. So let's begin with point one, which is concerning social distancing. I want to take you on a tour of thinking. I want to expose you to some very common experiments. 
The news media used a spray bottle filled with a clear liquid that turns blue under ultraviolet light. They had someone stand six feet away, and they sprayed the bottle in the subject's direction. At six feet, many large droplets made their way from the bottle to the subject. Because of this, we have our six-feet social distancing rule. If this proves anything, it proves six feet is not enough. But if they told us we couldn't get within 18 feet of another person, how far do you think that rule would get? Well, the face mask takes up the slack, right? Right? So my response to that is that uh, the, the process of using a spray bottle as an experiment is not, well, you might argue is an experiment, it's not much of one, um, and it doesn't fit the definition that we, we talked about earlier. And in what respect is a spray bottle a simulation of human breathing or, or coughing? Um, and and how does the, the liquid that was used relate to what comes out of a human mouth or nose? So it's it may well be a good experiment in spray bottle squirting, but not much to do with uh, with human uh, spreading of um, viruses. And I, I disagree that this uh, so-called experiment simulates human transmission of infectious materials. It only demonstrates that whatever the UV reactive liquid that was being used um, in the demonstration, that, that it can travel further than six feet when sprayed from this particular device. So that's that's my feeling. Yes, well, and I I, um, I have a few separate points, and I agree with what Dave has just said there. Um, the I feel this point made in episode three four one four. Uh, on social distancing would be made much stronger if we had a specific rest, uh, reference. We're only told that this experiment was done by the news media. Now, that immediately makes me wonder, why are we not given a specific reference? Why not a link to a YouTube video? He does it elsewhere. Uh, why not uh, for this? I, I think given that uh, quite a lot of weight has been placed in this, a specific reference would, 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 would strengthen the argument here. Now, the other implication is that the six-foot distancing rule is based on this simple, flawed experiment. Now, I, I don't believe this is the case. There are much more rigorous experiments, and I'll mention one later when we come to masks. Um, but no matter how good your experiment, even if you did do a much a, a better simulation of uh, human breathing, that would not tell us what distance we can specify uh, in the social distancing rule, that is a matter of judgment. And to, to emphasize that point, uh, the, in the US, it's quoted as six feet because they like imperial measurements, ironically. And in the UK, um, it is uh, quoted as two meters, which is just a little bit longer than six feet. And uh, throughout Europe, uh, the distances were generally shorter. Uh, they were either one or one and a half meters uh, uh, throughout Europe. I and uh, I guess throughout the world, there was a lot of variation. If you want to read more about this, and actually an interesting debate about how this is handled politically, there is quite an interesting exchange in a debate in the UK Parliament, which I've linked to in the show notes. Finally, a six-foot distancing rule, or any distance, it's intended to be a simple and easy-to-understand measure that will help reduce transmission. I think most people, I would say it's commonly understood that droplets in aerosols uh, will exceed this distance. Nobody really believes that there's some invisible barrier at six feet that 
you're safe at. Uh, if they do believe that, they should be corrected pretty quickly. Um, and I believe they would be. Um, but I don't believe that's a widespread belief. So uh, as with a few points made uh, in that show, I think this is somewhat of a straw man argument. Good stuff. So like I said before, there are three references relating to this particular point, and they're listed after the uh, the, the written uh, responses here. So um, reckon that, that they we've tried to choose things which are particularly relevant to the, the points that we're putting forward. Obviously, there are loads and loads more, but uh, we don't want to go too far with this. But please do your own research. So moving on then to point two, where we're talking about the effectiveness of masks and um, that's from 2 minutes 22 to 3 minutes 21 I was meaning to say this each time but I forgot last time and uh, we'll hear what the uh, the audio says that particular range if you wear eyeglasses you've already done the next experiment many times if you don't wear eyeglasses you can still observe this experiment When you come out of a grocery store on a cold day, stop for a while and watch those who are coming in. Those wearing eyeglasses will have their eyeglasses fogged up. You already know why I know. If everybody's breath is going around their masks already, what good is a second mask going to do? You can answer that one easily. How much more effective is an N95 mask on your face over an N95 mask in your pocket? A little. When I spray paint, if the mask seals to my face, I won't smell the thinner, but when it doesn't quite seal, I can smell the thinner. If you can smell the coffee, well, hair should never go around the mask. So moving on to my response... The ob- these are observations and not an experiment, I think. There's some relevant observations and there are questions that are worth uh, looking at. So does having a poorly fitting mask completely cancel out the effect of wearing a mask is one, one uh, way of looking at it. And I, I would say that different types of masks will have different levels of effectiveness and they need to be worn properly to optimize effectiveness. So people with their noses outside their masks are wearing them in properly, as are people who, wearing, who wear them on their chins. And, and you do see an amazing amount of this, which I find really strange. Um, as a wear on your head, really, in, in many cases. The readily available mask types, such as the disposable surgical masks, which are fairly easy to, to come by, and also washable cloth masks, which have become quite popular, they will both reduce the respiratory cloud, as it tends to be called, um, of particles coming out of breath, and therefore will lessen the likelihood of, COVID, of a COVID-19 carrier spreading the virus. There's a paper that I've uh, referenced here, um, which is the first in, the, in our list of references down below, uh, which does a quite detailed analysis. Over to Andrew. Well, uh, the point made here is that, and I agree with it, is that a mask is not 100% effective in stopping transmission of the virus. But again, this point risks a straw man argument because very few people would claim that masks 
can be a hundred percent effective. Yeah, well, obviously, like a, a mask with its, you know, like a, that you would use in some biohazard facility, or when you're spray painting toxic paint, which is mentioned in the show, um, has to be of a very high standard. Um, but the masks we're talking about here that are worn by the general population are nowhere near the standard cloth masks and the two ply masks, certainly not. Um, so there is no, I think it's commonly understood that masks do not give you anything like 100% protection. Now, government and media were mentioned uh, in this show, but let me give you this example. A government minister did try to claim that wearing a mask could lead to 100% or nearly, I think he did actually claim it was a complete protection, but let's say, be generous and say he really meant nearly 100% uh, uh, protection in stopping transmission with a, with. Uh, two people in fairly close proximity wearing masks. So that was the, the claim that he made. He was immediately criticised for making this claim uh, because medical professionals were worried, that understood it, that this could lead to complacency, that masks make you immune to the, you know, uh, uh, not immune to the virus, but would protect you completely from the virus. This isn't true. And so he was criticised roundly uh, by journalists in particular and the public on, on social media. And, and in the end, it was shown that the infographic he had based this claim on had no valid source. It was just a, a, a nice pretty picture that somebody had put together with some numbers and words on it that, had, as far as we know, been made up. It didn't come from any scientific study. Uh, and he apologised, uh, which is good, and retracted the claim. So it, I, my point here is that it, most people understand that masks limit transmission. Uh, they don't stop it entirely. Um, now, personally, I wear masks um, when I'm out and about, um, in the, well, indoors. Um, but I am quite sceptical about their efficacy for a number of reasons. Um, uh, this is because there are so many different factors at play uh, in the real world that we can't simulate in a scientific experiment. How many people are present? What type of mask? How are they wearing them? How are they handling them? What's the ventilation like? I could go on. Now, I came across a, a an article published in the, the journal Nature, which is a highly respected journal, if you know anything about science. And it has quite a thorough description of an experiment done in a small number of individuals wearing different masks. Now, interestingly, they found two, two things. One was that homemade cloth masks could increase the amount of particles coming out, but that didn't mean that would increase transmission. It was actually part the mask being aerosolized, being particles being created by the breath going through the mask that increased the particles. It could lead to increased transmission, but th that experiment wasn't designed to test that. Every other type of mask did certainly reduce transmission uh, to a statistically significant degree, but cloth masks had a, had a bit of a question mark in them in that study. The other thing that they found is one individual out of their study consistently produced higher quantities of particles, no matter what mask they were wearing. In other words, there was evidence for a, a super spreader, not in the careless wandering around, you know, um, uh, with um, with abandon, ignoring all the rules type of super spreader, but one that was a super spreader physiologically, they just produced more particles from their breath. It was again, it was unclear as to why uh, this was the case. So I think the point here is we make uh, we should understand that masks and the science behind them uh, are very it is difficult to pin down, and that will generate debate. Now, just because they're debate doesn't mean they're useless, even if say a mask I'm wearing is 50% effective or 25% effective, then it's still reducing transmission. And in concert with other methods, such as social distancing, I think it's still worth 
doing them. Um, so in, when the point is made that social distancing isn't enough and to quote, face mask takes up the slack, end quote, I think that's too simplistic. There's not just two methods at play here. There's not just two factors. I think you have to think more widely than that and not try and isolate one individually. Excellent, yes. Okay, going on to the next point where we're talking about the spreading of the virus. And uh, this is from 321 to 505. So it's longer, longer section of audio, which we'll hear now. The next experiment I do nearly every day. I make a cup of coffee and I put milk into it. You can probably do this with tea also. If you pour the milk in along the edge of the cup, you don't need to stir it with a spoon. With the right cup, the milk will be completely mixed in. Why is this important? If you put a COVID patient wearing a mask in the corner of a room, the air they breathe will be stirring up the room. It won't be as complete as the milk gets mixed, but it will get some mixing done. The next experiment requires the weather to cooperate, but hopefully you can recall a previous version of this experiment. It concerns water in the air. When the water in the air is in large groups, or drops, it falls to the ground very quickly. But when the drops are really tiny, they have very little weight but proportionately great wind drag. This allows the tiny drops to spend a lot more time in the air before hitting the ground. The drops that come out of a person's mouth are very tiny indeed. Combine their time in the air with the breathing causing the mixing, and you have six feet and masks adding up to a very short safe time in an enclosed area. The other day I saw two people traveling in a car with masks on. If they are from different families and are brought together for some task that requires them to travel together, the media would have them wear masks to keep safe. If you've been paying attention, you know that if they had different viruses in their systems before the trip, they were sharing those viruses after the trip. So going on to my response to this, um, there are no, although the word experiment is using is used a lot, that there aren't really any experiments here, but there's some some observations which are which are worth discussing. And yes, an infected person in a closed, poorly ventilated room will spread viruses in the atmosphere. This is uh, this is known, and I think experiments have shown it, and uh, its uh, observations will show people catching disease from such uh, in environments. And yes, human breath contains some very fine aerosols, which may contain infective agents. It contains fine and also coarser particles, but uh, the fine aerosol is the, the, the element that tends to move around more for, for fairly obvious reasons, I guess. And uh, this is these particular factors are the, uh, make up the reason why the advice in general is to avoid situations where large numbers of people are congregating indoors and to boost ventilation in indoor environments as much as possible. And uh, to, as we've been saying, use masks and suitable distancing in indoor environments um, as well, to, all of which will help to uh, to offset the fact that there is virus in the in potentially in the in the atmosphere in that uh, environment. So, Andrew, 
Uh, yes, well, I actually don't have that much to add. I think the main thing I would say here is that most of the description given here is actually fairly accurate. And I think the, the real world everyday analogies, these kind of analogies are actually appropriate and helpful, I think, in the main like, mixing of the coffee cup. It's a nice way to visualize mixing that will occur in of the air in a room, which is all invisible, of course, where you can see it in a coffee cup. Another one that I like is you're boiling a pan of peas. You can see convection currents in the peas. So it's nice uh, you know, to, to, to visualize things in these ways. There's a few details where I would quibble, though. Uh, the wind drag, uh, and it, when that's met, and they're in that area, I'm not quite sure what, what the science is uh, uh, saying, well, what is being said about the science there. But my main problem is it would be good to quote uh, a reference in here again. It would strengthen the point that's made. And it's the same problem, again, that I've mentioned before. It's a kind of straw man argument uh, that masks plus social distancing, even together, are nowhere near 100% in affecting transmission. If you were briefly passing through a room or indoor area or a shop, even, you know, just to go in and buy a newspaper and come back out again, I think... It, there's good argument there that uh, the mask um, uh, would help you also keeping your distance from people. It's not going to hurt, you know, um, but there should be no expectation that it gives you complete protection either. But I think in that circumstance, it's worth doing. If you were in a badly ventilated room, crowded with a lot of people for many hours on end, would social distancing, would a mask help you so much then? I think probably not. You know, in that situation, you're facing a much higher risk of catching the virus, especially if there happens to be one person who's infected spewing out particles in that room and the air is getting mixed out. So, yes, that is true uh, in, in that latter circumstance. But again, you know, by controlling our behaviour during the pandemic, we can make masks and social distancing be more effective by choosing the circumstances that we go into. So it's not just about the mask and social distancing, it's thinking through the wider picture again. Thank you. So moving on to point four, where we're looking at the importance of vitamin D3, and uh, the audio is taken from the show, five minutes, six seconds to seven minutes, 21. And now I drop the bomb, the bomb of hope. There are three web pages that I want you to know about. Two of them testify of the importance of vitamin D3 to your immune system, and one of them testifies to the importance of body temperature to someone exposed to COVID or any other virus. 4,000 to 5,000 IU is a recommended dose for wintertime, but I talked with someone whose doctor recommended 45,000 IU for a short time to get her D3 up to a safe level. Oh, here's another experiment that happens every year, and even those who want you to get a vaccine admit it. When October came around last year, even those advocating for a vaccine predicted a second wave of COVID infections. In order for a second wave to happen, there had to be a receding of the first wave. That would have been during the experiment in the summer. History records this experiment every year, not just for COVID, but for all viruses. Flu season takes a break in the summer. That doesn't mean you can't get the flu during the summer, but it's a lot harder. The politicians don't want you to think about how the sunshine increases vitamin D3 in your system, and keeping your body temperature warm slows the growth of viruses. I want you to ask yourself why the flu takes a break in the summer. 
and how can we keep it going through the fall and winter? I've mentioned the two reasons I can think of. If you duck up, using DuckDuckGo, COVID-19, doctor, and clinical trial, you'll find the first webpage, a YouTube video. A hospital in Spain did a double-blind study with patients who came in with COVID symptoms. All 76 got normal hospital treatment for COVID, but 50 of them also got vitamin D3. It's admittedly a small study, but the score, 7.6% death rate without the D3, and 0% death rate with D3, means it deserves to be repeated all around the world. If you duck up Radiolab podcast and Invisible Allies, you'll find the Radiolab episode of the same name. This episode suggests that vitamin D3 helped the homeless population weather the COVID outbreak. How few homeless came down with COVID-19 symptoms is notable. So here's my thoughts about this. And uh, there's certainly been a lot of discussion about the role of vitamin D3 in lessening effects of the effects of COVID-19. And uh, um, the the host who is called we haven't actually mentioned his name. I think Kogo is the is the, the name, the handle he uses. Uh, apologies for not mentioning it before. But um, he refers to a YouTube video from Dr. John Campbell, who I've been following throughout the, the pandemic personally, um, who is a, a medical professional, uh, more on the nursing side than the than the uh, being a, being a doctor. I think his uh, he has a uh, PhD perhaps in in the teaching side of medicine, but anyway, he's he's been an ex- excellent source of information. He is very very keen on the idea that vitamin D three is something we should all be taking, but unfortunately, the Spanish clinical trial that's mentioned in the video and elsewhere still seems to be too small to give enough confidence in its results and. At the point that I was looking at this, other trials have so far proved inconclusive. However, there's no no damage to taking uh, a recommended dose of vitamin D3. So um, the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, has been recommending taking vitamin D3 supplements for elderly and immunocompromised people, the word I'm struggling with. Um, so, and uh, it's it's been... There's been free access to supplies during the winter. I imagine those are those are coming back again. I've certainly been taking vitamin D3 myself. Uh, Anthony Fauci, who's the uh, the government epidemiologist, like I'm not sure what his official title is, but he's certainly the the guy that everybody goes to in the states. He uh, he says he takes vitamin D supplement uh, himself, and um, the. General conclusion seems to be without a huge amount of evidence yet, but it seems to be that supplements should be taken. But this is in addition to vaccination, and certainly not, as some people are saying, instead of vaccination. So the argument that homeless people have avoided COVID nineteen due to high vitamin D three levels is unsupported. It, it, it I've certainly heard this point being made but uh, when you look there there seems to be very little evidence that that's that's in fact the case and there's a, a reference in the list below 
this uh, this section of the notes to um, to support that. So over to you then, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Well, I echo the uh, what you said there that uh, uh, yeah, it's the idea is that you take vitamin D three in addition to vaccination, not instead of. Yeah, but from my point of view, whether or not vitamin D three helps protect against COVID nineteen. I'll be honest here, this is where my knowledge of biology just uh, slows me up. I, I, I've read some of the studies. I can see this, understand the statistics, and the statistics aren't all that significant uh, in the ones that I looked at, but I don't really understand the, the, the biological reasons why we need it. But I do know, uh, being an astronomer, that there's a clear reason why we end up being vitamin D3 uh, deficient at high latitudes. Uh, Dave and I both live just short of 56 degrees north. He's in the far east of Scotland in Edinburgh and in Glasgow, but we're at pretty much the same latitude. In winter, a lot of people here will suffer from vitamin D uh, deficiencies because we just don't get enough sunlight. The days are short, the sun doesn't get very high, and it's cold, so we wrap up and have very little skin exposed. And as a result, we're generally deficient in this vitamin in this country. Now in Scandinavia, it's not so bad because they actually, I think through diet of fish, oily fish, um, get more vitamin uh, uh, D3 uh, than, than we do through the diets we typically have in the UK and especially Scotland. And we've been constantly told for years that we need to do something about this, either change our diet or take vitamin supplements uh, to avoid the effect and I think uh, Dave you can correct me but there are medical conditions like rickets for example mm -hmm. yep. uh, that are seen as a, as a result of this so it's not a trivial thing I mean less less these days diets are better than they were 100 years ago but it's still in this modern day and age the case that people are diagnosed with rickets as a result of this nevertheless um, people in the west of Scotland in particular are famous for their terrible diets they ignore this advice and I really don't see that advising them to take vitamin D3 to protect them, protect them against COVID is really going to uh, change that when they're already facing high levels of um, heart disease through bad diet uh, and other things. So I just, even if this was true, uh, and it doesn't seem clear cut to me either way whether it's true or not, with vitamin D3 protecting against COVID, I don't think uh, it would be good public health policy. It would you'd be you'd have your work cut out to get that advice across to the public here. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's different elsewhere. It definitely is different in other countries, uh, Scandinavia, Scandinavian ones, for example. Now, the point here is made that viruses recede during summer months, and that's unarguably true. There's plenty of evidence for that. Uh, and there's two suggestions uh, in this podcast, uh, sorry, in this show, that uh, 3414 as to why this is. Uh, one is vitamin D3, the other one is come, will come to later, but to do with the temperature. But the most obvious explanation for why virus transmission increases in the winter is that people spend most of their time indoors in badly ventilated spaces, at home, in the office, at school. And with advent central heating, this got worse actually in society because when you had old fire, you know, like coal fires, with all the problems they bring, they did suck air through the house. A modern centrally heated home, double glazed, is quite well sealed, there's not drafts, there's not much airflow through the house, that or office building or school. And that is why I think you see increased viral transmission in winter. That, uh, from everything I've read, is, if not the main cause, certainly should be up there in, in consideration. That isn't mentioned here. Um, and the next step we can look at is 
Uh, did is it true actually that COVID nineteen waves only took place during the winter? Did they take a break during summer? And the evidence is 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 to the contrary. The first COVID nineteen wave did not uh, take hold in many Western countries until the spring. We were March April when the worst of it hit. So it grew. Uh, the transmission rates were increasing through spring and uh, uh, and early summer. They did decline during summer, but you could argue. Yes, that was due to summer. You could also argue that was because of the lockdown measures that were taken. Uh, the most recent wave that we've been through, uh, where there's certainly in this country been next very little in the way of lockdown or restrictions, took place during the summer months. In the UK, the last peak was in July, and in the US and France, it occurred in August, and it extended into September in many other countries. This is not usual for a respiratory or a flu virus to peak during summer months like that. Um, if you want to verify this data for yourself, there's many places you can do it. But one place that collects data for you across many countries that I'd recommend is Our World in Data. And there's a link to that in the show notes. So point five then is um, about body temperature and COVID-19. And that's from 7 minutes 53 to 10 minutes 1 second. And um, we'll listen to the audio now. If you duck up coronavirus 2003 and BMR, you'll find a web page where a medical professional points out the importance of staying warm to fight COVID. This knowledge is from 2003 and a previous COVID outbreak. We learn from history that we don't learn from history. But medical professionals should be required to answer for this information from 2003. When I was a kid, if you came in wet from winter weather, your mom would say something like, get out of those wet clothes before you catch your death of cold. After this, some people calling themselves scientists said, you don't get a cold from being cold, you get a cold from a virus. Unfortunately, we've built a society on this misinformation. Though there's some truth to this, those who paid attention knew that being cold for a length of time could lead to catching the flu. Now there is evidence that many, if not all, viruses replicate faster if your body temperature is reduced by 5 degrees or so. Spiking a fever is probably a way for your body to fight off a virus. Some people assert that a fever, if it's less than 104 degrees Fahrenheit, should be encouraged. How do people get their temperature down by 5 degrees? The group of people in Texas who got COVID together worked in a meat packing plant. Cold extremities? Probably. Another method to reduce the temperature of people's extremities is to take them to a hospital. Most of us have had the experience of being cold in a hospital room. There's valid scientific reason for this. The air is kept cold around beds made with stainless steel to keep condensation from forming and to keep bacteria from growing on parts of the bed. While this is important, it's also important for the patient's body temperature to be maintained. One solution would be to supply each bed with an electric blanket. So moving on to my response to, to this I think there's little evidence that being cold in the sense being used here has any effect on susceptibility to viruses or to other agents, bacteria, whatever. 
Now, animal experiments have shown an, an effect of significant lowering of body temperature. That's 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 where the temperature is reduced by plunging into icy water or something for for, for a period, and uh, you know that 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 has a, that changes the core temperature quite significantly, but. Being out on a cold day tend, tends not to do that unless you're, you know, you're in, in, in minus 30 type temperatures and you're, you're out for a very long time without proper clothing or whatever. So I don't, my impression from reading around about this subject, which I, I didn't know a great deal about in the first instance, um, that uh, there was very little in the way of significant effect on the immune system. Uh, in humans, when uh, when when following this one through, the medical professional cited in the notes for episode three four one four was actually responding to a Hong Kong report into the original SARS virus, which is referenced here, and the opinion report reported in this response, which effectively a comment was that cold might be a factor in the worsening of the disease, but. I believe that this is an opinion. Certainly, no clinical trial associated with it. And I just make the point that the uh, the the term other the other previous COVID or the other COVID was mentioned in the in the notes, and uh, that there there wasn't no other COVID. The previous virus was called SARS. Final point was about hospitals. Um, experience of hospitals in the UK and in other parts of Europe and parts of Asia in my case is that these places are kept very warm, sometimes uh, uncomfortably so. But uh, yeah, that's, that's certainly my experience. What it's like in the States, I have no idea. Andrew, what do you Yeah, got? Well, I certainly certainly agree with you. I was spent seven hours waiting around in a hospital. Nothing serious wasn't. Uh, me that was ill, but uh, I'd spent seven hours waiting in hospital a few days ago, and it, I can vouch for the fact it, the air, although there was a ventilation system, it felt uh, it did feel too hot. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was kept warm. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and perhaps that's for patient comfort. I was a visitor and therefore fully clothed, but I certainly couldn't sit with a jacket on. I had to at least take the jacket off, and even then, I still felt too warm. Um, now, uh, the this particular area is the one I find most difficult because my biological understanding is 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 rather limited. So as the urge to do by the host of three four one four what three four one four, I um, went and did some web searches, um, and evidence that I found in this not very scientific research on the web uh, was all kinds of studies that showed a. There was suspicion that there was something going on here with body temperature, but it was not um, clear-cut. And and I I apologise for something that stuck record. The conclusion I came to is it's very hard to isolate one factor in virus transmission from the others. That yes, cold may be a factor, but it's hard to isolate it and pull it away from other factors like the ventilation in the room, uh, for example. I actually quite like the, the reference to the the common sense, uh, you know, your your mum or your your gran- granny, your grandmother telling you, oh, you'll catch your death of a cold uh, outside if you don't put on your jacket. In Scotland, this is certainly a thing, uh, a cult- cultural thing. And it's easy to understand why in winter, 
in past generations, because modern generations, this is not such a big thing, but in past generations, before you had central heating, say if you were going to school, you're a child going to school and you had to walk because we didn't have cars, like I'm talking, you know, in mid to early 20th century, you walk to school, Glasgow's a very wet city, you get soaked on your way to school in winter, and then you get to the school and the heating wouldn't necessarily be all that great at school. Um, and so, you know, uh, and so you wouldn't dry out. You'd be wet all day long, you know. So it would be, for, apart from anything else, very unpleasant thing. Nowadays, the heat, that sent everything, including schools, centrally heated, you'd dry out much faster. So the, the argument in past generations was not just that, you know, you catch a death of a cold, but if you got wet, you stayed wet and you wouldn't dry out. It was very hard to dry yourself out. If you've ever been camping, you'll you'll know uh, from first-hand experience uh, how unpleasant that can be. Um, whether it leads to increased viral transmission, I just, you know, the jury is out. I suspect there is something there, but you know, my jury is out, I should say. It's not clear-cut from what I read. Mm. No, that's, that's a very good point. And it, it was a lot different back in the in the day um i was saying to my kids recently that uh, as a as a youngster um in the 1960s um it was the the norm that boys wore shorts uh until they reached a certain age regardless of the weather and and walking home from school when there was a sleet storm or something in shorts was the most horrendous thing. <laughs> Never made me ill, but boy, did it did it to end up with some sore skin on my on my knees as a consequence of it. it was, I, could, I could feel it now. It was it was horrendous. So yeah. Yep. I, I I had to do exactly the same for the first five years of school in the nineteen seventies. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Very unpleasant. Yeah. So. Okay, moving on then to the last point, which is uh, point six, trust. I've called it, uh, these are my titles, by the way, Trust Issues and Conspiracy Theories. And it's from 10.02 in the audio to 12.02, which I think is pretty much the end of the the audio. And um, so we'll just listen to that now. My government, and probably yours, wants everybody vaccinated. But they don't trust the vaccines enough to hold Big Pharma accountable for the damage the vaccines cause. The unvaccinated, who already have antibodies for COVID, are on their list. But if they already have antibodies, what use is the vaccine to them? It's an important question because there may be reasons governments want people vaccinated other than health. If they are ignoring vitamin D3 and body temperature, and concentrating on experimental vaccines, then public health is clearly not the issue. I think we need ambulance chaser lawyers for the COVID crisis. If someone has an ambulance chaser lawyer send a registered letter to a hospital or a nursing home detailing the importance of vitamin D3 and body temperature to fight COVID viruses, they will have to give patients vitamin D3 and keep them warm. Just a few institutions as targets are all that will be necessary because the rates of serious infections will show the efficacy of this treatment. Once this information goes public, the ambulance chasers will be able to drain money from any institution that ignores this, possibly including governments. If you've already had COVID and don't want to get an experimental vaccine, you should get an antibody test. 
If you already have the antibodies for COVID, public health cannot be a reason for getting this experimental vaccine. An ambulance chaser lawyer can then drain money from whoever compels you to get the vaccine and then fires you for not getting it. If a company or school system or hospital compels their employees to get the vaccines, even though the drug companies are given immunity by governments, the company that requires vaccination should be held responsible for harmful side effects and death. So my response to this is to to say that um, ever since vaccines were invented, they have been extremely vital to prevent the spread of diseases. And the list of diseases and the vaccines is, is long and getting longer. And I've listed things like smallpox, cholera, diphtheria, etc. But uh, as I was growing up in the 1950s, when everyone was frightened of polio and diphtheria, a fact that even I, as a child of about five or six, was aware of, um, then you know these are these were issues that were that were in everybody's mind. And I've made reference to an article on the the history of of uh, virus um, uh, virus experiences and vaccination. And uh, so from that point of view, and this is not really a scientific point, but it's a sort of a, a social one, it's unbelievable to me that anyone in 2021 would wish to ignore or attempt to undermine the, the science of a vaccination without really good cause, and I don't see one. So I'd say that the COVID-19 vaccine is not e- experimental. The vaccine technology has moved forward tremendously in recent years to the level that targeted vaccines can be made much faster than ever before. Several of the current vaccines use messenger RNA, also called mRNA, to make human cells generate the virus proteins, which then stimulate the immune system. And vaccines like the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines do this. So effectively, uh, it's a technique of rather than giving um, viruses, they say dead viruses, but it's debatable whether viruses are alive ever. Um, but uh, that's a that's a long debate. Um, but uh, denatured in some form viruses which contain all of the proteins, etc., which trigger the immune system. That that's been one way of dealing with it. But uh, in the past, but but now we're, we have the technology to get the cells of the human body to make the uh, substances which are going to trigger, they're called epitopes, by the way, uh, which are going to trigger the um, the, the immune system. Um, so there are others, other vaccines which use harmless viruses which have been modified to cause human cells to generate these proteins, and that includes the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been popular in the UK, and the Johnson & Johnson uh, which is also uh, used in the in the states and in quite a lot of Europe, I think. Now, these vaccines can be developed a lot faster than previously uh, because the the technology is is such that that it that, that can happen. And the full range of normal critical clinical trials is being run at a high speed in order to reach the required level of confidence as rapidly as possible. So. I think I would maintain that that it's not experimental. Things have been sped up considerably uh, compared to, to previous times when whole whole viruses have been given to people. But uh, 
that's that's just part of the way things have changed, I think. Now, all vaccines have some risk associated with them, but these are almost always minimal. The NHS staff, in my experience, check for any allergies when you're receiving a vaccination. You're asked to remain nearby for 10 minutes in case you might have some allergic reaction following the vaccination. Um, there is a very rare blood clotting problem that's been reported in relation to the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, but this is currently under investigation, and it is very, very rare, though the cause is not currently known. The risk of getting COVID-19 is much higher than any vaccine side effects, especially if you're older than 50 or have comorbidities, i.e. other other illnesses, you know, heart conditions, diabetes, overweight, those sorts of things. It's advised that people who have had COVID-19 and who have antibodies to the virus be vaccinated to ensure that they have a safe level of immunity. So it, on the face of it, it seems that if you've had the disease and recovered, you will have antibodies, and therefore why would you need a vaccine? Um, it is possible that the so-called natural immunity that you get as a consequence of this is not as effective as that provided by the vaccines. This would depend on factors like which variant you caught um, and what's around now and whether the illness was asymptomatic, therefore quite mild and so forth. Maybe it was mild um, because your, your immune system uh, dealt with it very fast or maybe it was mild because you did you hardly got any of the virus, just enough to sort of tickle your, your immune system and not enough to make it go into a raging attack on the, uh, on the virus proteins and stuff. So as mentioned before, there are some indications that maintaining vitamin D3 helps support the immune system. There are similar indications that zinc also has effects. I haven't uh, cited any of the science on this, but I believe that, that there's been a bit more done on the, the zinc level with, with more positive results. Um, but they're not a cure for COVID-19. They're, they're, they're things that help your immune system fight it rather than anything else. Um, and as I say, the evidence is, is still minimal. It's important to emphasize that these measures are not a substitute for the vaccine. So, Andrew, over to you. Well, I have to say, again, I'm sort of out of my comfort zone here and actually I've learned quite a lot from what Dave has just uh, said and, and what we discussed before recording this. Um, so I'm going to confine myself to one, uh, I feel like, biologically uh, related point um, and the rest are actually to do with the argument and the, you know, the measures we take in society. Now, this first point uh, is one that I think I could provide some quite solid references to. I actually have a friend who's a scientist that's worked on vaccines and immunology uh, in and outside of big pharma companies. He funded his own company more recently. So he's checked. I've, I've consulted him in this uh, to check my understanding. Uh, my basic understanding is right. Um, so the first thing is that lacking antibodies does not necessarily mean a lack of immunity. A paper published in the journal Nature presented evidence that long-lived immunity can arise from something called T-cells and that such immunity can even apply across different coronaviruses. In fact, they found evidence that people who had the original SARS 17 years ago, uh, SARS 
COVID-1 uh, that we mentioned before had some level of immunity against the current coronavirus. Now, there, there are similarities between the two, but they really are quite different. So this was a bit of a surprise finding. Um, that that was pu paper was published last year, so it may be that there's been a, some updates since then. There's a, a link to it in the show notes. Uh, separately to that, it's also known that antibodies wane over time from infection, and specific to uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the uh, researchers at Oxford University and hospitals uh, around Oxford found that the number level of antibodies fall by a half in 90 days. Now, for both reasons, the implications uh, would be that the implication would be that an antibody test in itself would not be definitive on immunity. So you can't just take an antibody test uh, to determine whether you've got immunity to COVID or not. It's not as simple as that. Now, some countries are indeed considering immunity passports, showing that you've had the virus in addition to vaccine passports. However, it is much easier to show and hold public records on whether a person has had a vaccine or not than it is on whether they have immunity, for reasons I've just described, or even simply that they have had the virus and recovered with possibly some natural immunity. Although, as Dave said, there's a question mark uh, over that. Now, the reason that this is difficult is because we didn't test so much at the beginning of the pandemic because we didn't have the resources to do so. And still, it's been done in, inconsistently across countries even just now. So basing natural immunity evidence on testing and people reporting themselves that they've had the virus and recovered, they might have had another coronavirus where they might have had something completely unrelated and mistaken it uh, for COVID because COVID symptoms are really quite varied, including very mild uh, infections. Um, it would be quite, I think it would be quite hard to, to put that into practice, uh, uh, practice administratively. In fact, it's much easier to just do vaccine passports. So the reason that vaccine passports are being done, whether you agree with them or not, and I think there's an interesting debate to be had there, it's not necessarily clear cut. Uh, I think it should be something that's discussed. But vaccine passports are administratively easier to do, which is why they're being done, I think. Now, previous points uh, in episode 3414 argued that measures to prevent COVID-19 transmission are either only partially effective or being overlooked entirely, such as vitamin D3 and body temperature arguments. But uh, the argument here in this part, in this point that we're uh, looking at, jumps uh, and it makes an assertion that governments and big pharma with some sort of media cooperation are encouraged us to get the vaccination for some ulterior motive. Now, if taken at face value, the previous points outlined in 3414 are consistent with this, but they don't justify that conclusion. That's why I call it an assertion. It doesn't follow from anything that's been said before. It's something we're being asked to believe at this point and take on board. Now, keeping an open mind, you have to ask, what is the motive for getting us vaccinated by these big pharma companies? It seems to be if I explicitly stated that it's big farmers that are driving this vaccination campaign and governments are, 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 are too afraid for some reason to do anything about it. Well, the fact that big farmers has been mentioned suggests to me that one motive that is implied is profit. But why leave this vague? It's kind of left open. I think it's worth um, I think it's worth 
making the motive clear. If you're calling people in power to account, whether they're governments or big companies, I think you need to really be clear as to what their motive might be and present evidence for it. But it's kind of left hanging, which uh, I find a bit puzzling in, in this argument. Now, finally, I'd like to quote uh, from something we, we just heard the host of the show read out, but I want to, for emphasis, I want to be clear, I want to read out again. So begin quote, the company that requires vaccination should be held responsible for harmful side effects and death, end quote. Companies and governments should certainly be held to account for any harm that they do, but no evidence has been presented of a vaccine causing harm here, as, as, as Davis discussed. Huge numbers of people now have been given vaccines in many countries. Uh, I mean, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it must be in the hundreds of millions, if not getting towards a billion now, of people in the world have now been given vaccines to some degree or another. If um, uh, if there was harm being done, there should be evidence of it. Even if harm was a fraction of a percent, that still equates to a huge number of people. It would be difficult to hide. Um, if governments were somehow covering this up on such an enormous scale, it would require an amazing level of competence. And I don't know about you, but certainly the level of competence or rather incompetence I see from my governments, both the Scottish government and the UK government, the ones I know best, would it would be just incredible that they could pull that off. Um, but let's say that I'm wrong. Let's play devil's advocate against myself. Let's say that the governments have, with the big pharma companies, managed to hide this from us. Well, I've got another problem in that um, uh, how is it that all the people I know that have had the vaccine, and that is pretty much every adult that I know, uh, how come not one of them have told me of anything beyond a minor side effect? I think one of them had some flu-like symptoms uh, uh, and had to take to bed for a day, and that was the worst, and, and after that was fine. Uh, it, if there is bad effects of the virus, I just I can't see it firsthand. I can't see it secondhand or thirdhand yet. Uh, if these effects are to come some point in the future, well, I question we should deal with it then. We take it seriously, definitely. But why should we be going uh, uh, going up to find ambulance chasing lawyers now? Uh, for what reason? Is it that this might this evidence might emerge in the future? That seems backwards to me. Um, so I'm very sceptical uh, indeed on this very point. Great. Um, there's there's a, a number of references uh, relating to all of this. I just bring your attention to one that uh, that does cover the subject of um, viruses and immunology which is uh, from This Week in Virology, episode 802, with um, a, a well-thought-of, well-renowned uh, immunologist called Shane Crotty, who um, did a really good analysis of the, the immunological aspects of uh, the, the dealing with this particular virus and, uh, and, and disease. And... He talks a lot about the, um, the uh, T cells and other um, immune cells, B cells, and so forth. It's not a subject that I find myself that knowledgeable about. I really like to learn more about it. Uh, I'm trying to, but it's, it's it's a lot more complicated than it was when I was a uh, biology undergraduate. But you, you might find that um, that that sort of thing, and also uh, John Campbell's. Uh, episodes on YouTube help to um, 
fill in some of the gaps that you might have in the area of how the human body deals with viruses and antibodies and long-term immunity, etc., etc. Uh, plus also the fact that um, it's worth bearing in mind that this is still an area that's uh, being investigated. So new discoveries will uh, come along as as time time progresses because it's a, it's not a you know, it's not that science knows everything and that's the end of the story. Let's all go away. Um, but uh, it's it's an ongoing process. So um, you might find that some useful information there. So those are the points that we intended to cover and we want to draw some conclusions and uh, at the end of it. Um, I've just got a couple of things to, to say and then I'll hand over to Andrew. Uh, I feel that episode 3414 is in general misleading. I'm not sure that it's actually setting out to be misleading but it. Uh, it ends up being that way. It purports to be applying critical thinking to various aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic, but in reality is is, re is propagating what can only be called vague anecdotes um, at best and possibly even misinformation at worst, possibly in all innocence, but uh, it's, um, as I say, it's possible that this is a well-meaning effort, but... I believe that this sort of thing should not be done without plentiful references to facts in the form of peer-reviewed scientific papers and items from properly qualified expert sources. And that's what we've tried to do in this response to it. Um, so the part of the episode 3414, which has been separated out in this critique as point six, contains some examples of what can only really called conspiracy theories, the theory that in a pandemic governments are pushing vaccination for some nefarious purpose makes no sense, to me at least, neither does calling the vaccines experimental. No attempts are made to support such a case because there is nothing to support it. It's a particular example of the failure of critical thinking and even plain common sense, I would say. So that's my, my conclusion. Andrew. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would actually go with uh, all of that. I uh, to echo something you said. I, I'm happy to believe that the, uh, that uh, Kogo, who hosted the show, was saying something he genuinely believed, um, which I, I disagree with in many points. Um, um, I actually thought the show was well presented, uh, and and some thought had gone into its structure. And I would say rhetorically, it was, it was actually quite good. Um, but it is not logically sound. Um, you, there's two ways you need to make an argument. There's the logic. You've got to say things, provide facts, step through. Uh, but you've also got to persuade, which is what rhetoric is about, uh, which can be an emotional appeal. Uh, um, and I think that an argument that is rhetorically strong but logically weak is generally going to appeal to people who already maybe hold some of those views. Uh, it's quite hard to shift people from uh, one camp into another. Uh, a nudge is a better word. So it's not logically sound. The argument is very much geared to persuade. Um, and the reasoning doesn't, in my mind, stack up for the reasons we've gone through. And the evidence base uh, is, is really not there. I think many of Dave's points in particular pointed to premises from which, uh, well, there was a lack of a premise to start with. 
Regarding critical thinking, I think that, you know, critical thinking is, is vital and it most certainly involves questioning orthodoxy. And by that, I mean widely accepted thinking. In fact, common sense, the things people accept without even thinking about them, that's orthodoxy. Uh, and yes, orthodoxy is often transmitted by structures and institutions around us, some for bad reasons, uh, some for good reasons, just in democratic institutions will do it. Um, you know, we, and we trust, we want to trust institutions uh, if we, you know, so we can get on with our life so that they will look after us and uh, keep our you know, like hospitals ticking over and our roads uh, paved and our trains running on time, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's absolutely crucial to apply that critical thinking to those who wield power, and that certainly includes governments and corporation amongst others. Um, but true critical thinking isn't just concerned with holding those in power to account. Um, it should be applied to all arguments. You know, so a, a scientist, for example, would apply critical thinking to uh, nature. You know, it isn't just about uh, criticizing power. Uh, this episode, I think, takes critical thinking as meaning questioning the orthodoxy that's present around us and the, those in power, uh, which I think is a bit of a limited way to view it. The, to my mind, the true test of a critical thinker, and I'm quite open to challenge on this point, is that they welcome criticism and will use it to improve their thinking. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew. So we'll, we'll call it... Um an end at that particular point. Thank you for listening and uh, thanks very much to Andrew for um, his contribution to to this whole process. Uh, I was originally going to do this show myself and Andrew uh, in discussion offered to come and join in and it's made the whole thing a lot better than the original. So hopefully you found it useful and uh, please come back with comments and uh, shows of your own if you wish to um, engage in further discussion. Okay then, bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.